You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Yeah. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host Greg E. The Culture Change Agent. On this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generation of leaders. And today's show. One for the ages. One for the ages. Let me say it again. One for the ages. We breaking new ground on this thing. And my man jumps on the podcast and drops some jewels, nuggets, and all that good stuff. So if you want, if you were waiting on a heat rock, well, shoot, last week was a heat rock. Shoot, the week before that was a heat rock. Shoot, this whole season five has been a heat rock. But today I got some for you. Side note, and I need everybody to listen to clearly. So if you're in your car, turn your radio down. I mean, I can't say turn the radio now. You listen to me if you but when you're in your car, turn it, turn it up a little bit. If you're running, stop running. Stop, stop running. You're working out, stop working out. I need you to do one thing, one thing, one thing only. Yo, y'all gotta leave a review, yo. <laughs> I look at the reviews on I look at the reviews on iTunes for a second. So if you're an iPhone owner or listening via iTunes, yo, immediately if you haven't left a review already. And this is your first or second episode. Please do me a favor. Leave a review. We had like 220, which I'm grateful for. But we got almost a million freaking downloads. Wait, what's going on? Nah, 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 nah. Go ahead and leave that five-star boy right now. They have made the process mad easy. It's just like a couple clicks away. So open it up. Leave a review. If you don't know how to leave a review, contact me. Look at Google. Do something. But if you are listening to this podcast, and this is more than your first time listening and you haven't left a review and you got an iPhone, shame on you. Shame on you. <laughs> but that's that's it for that, man. But um, my last housekeeping thing before I begin is I have put out there on LinkedIn and I'm going to put it on a couple other social media platforms, a uh, link to a survey. It's like four questions. I just want to get to know this audience a little bit more, make sure that I'm addressing all your needs and uh, I want to know more people and more topics and more things to discuss, as well as potential other offerings that I can I can cook up together with the people that's been on the podcast, man. So if you're on LinkedIn, make sure that you fill out the survey, uh, or you can just go to gregehill.com and uh, sign, put your email address in, and you could be on the email list so we can keep you up to date with everything that's going on in the minority trailblazer world. In my world to keep you empowered, motivated, and just continue to share the good news. Uh, do I got something I want to share before we jump into the podcast? Mm, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. A quick update, quick life update. 
man, the feedback, I, I was on LinkedIn for the first time in like 10 months and the feedback has been phenomenal. Thank you so, so much. I'm not going to name names on this podcast, maybe in a future podcast, but so many people have reached out and, and shared their, their well wishes and excited to have the podcast back. Uh, some, some people ask about the car. No, I have not had, I don't have a car yet. I was in an accident, car got totaled. We're working through those things. I still got a, I still got, yeah, it's just a lot, man. It's a lot. It's a lot. But working through those things. And I ain't going to stress it. I'm not, I'm not stressing. I'm going to make the most of the situation while we're, we're Ubering up, while we're lifting up, while we're relying on others, my, my, my good brothers to, to, to hold me down. Shout out to T. Crump and all my other people that's held me down with rides, man. And just getting through the situation because it's not even a money issue at this point. It's just about, Having people honor what they say they're going to honor. And I guess I'll give, give you a little bit of it. It's crazy we're having a lawyer come on this podcast. But I had a lawyer two years ago. Um, I had a driving while license revoked uh, because some unpaid uh, tickets. And I didn't have the money at the time. So I got the DWLR. So when I had the money, I hired a lawyer to do his thing. Talk to the DA, get a knockdown. Uh, paid him $700. And he said he got me. One month go by. Oh, he got me. He pushed it back, pushed it back. So... Well, over a year occurred and he had pushed back the dates and he said, okay, yeah, we, we entered a plea and everything's good to go. So once I got my license back and uh, applying for a car, got the, my first car, my insurance was like 240 And I was like, all right, that's, uh, I'm not rocking with it, but I'll I pay because I need a car. They ended up dropping my insurance, my, my full coverage, and then raising it all the way up to $600. So I was like, nah, 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 we can't work like that. So, um, and it's crazy. All this happened while right before the car accident. So it's crazy I dodged that bullet. Luckily, I wasn't at fault. Nobody was hurt. But now that I'm getting another car, my insurance quotes are $600 plus. And I'm like, that's crazy. So now I realize after my due diligence that the lawyer pled guilty. And I was like, dude, I don't have to pay $700 for you to plead guilty, dude. I could have played guilty myself. I could have got that, that brand back. And I had 300 court calls. So we're in the process of getting all this stuff. So please keep me in prayers with that. And also, too, I want to tell y'all one, one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing before we begin. Actually, no, I'm going to save that for next episode because I just want to jump into this podcast. It's a phenomenal podcast. And it's an hour and 20 minutes. So guys, 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 it ain't, ain't two hours. You got this time. And uh, thank you. Thank you again. Loyal listeners, loyal supporter for supporting the Minority Trailblazing Movement. I do not take any of this for granted. It's been three years in the making. Not three years in the making. Three years in the running we've been going. And y'all been supporting us since day one. So love y'all. Got some more fire episodes. But definitely, definitely tune in closely because my man, Seth, is about to drop some bombs on this. All right? So thank y'all again. Enjoy the show. And today, I guarantee I got a show for you. Um, I'm interviewing somebody that... I don't know when I met him. I don't know. I, I, I really can't even be sure when I met him. But ever since kind of like hearing the story, seeing it online and also seeing his weight transformation and just what he has done, not only at, as far as personal development, as far as weight loss, as far as what he's doing now in the in the, 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 the law community. I mean, I think he's just a very encouraging person. 
one, he's the only lawyer that we've, I believe, dang, only lawyer I think we ever had on the Minority Trailblazer podcast out of all these episodes. I got to do better. And also, two, one of the only members of the LGBTQ community that we had on the podcast. So I, I am just beyond excited, not only have some great conversation, but to have some conversation that we typically, two black males, would never have on a podcast in relation to some things, man. So I'm going to read a snippet of this bio, and then we're just going to jump right into the show. So he's an associate and business lawyer for Foley and Lardner, LLP. He is a member of the firm's private equity and venture capital practice. He was a summer associate with Foley in 2015. Prior to joining Foley, he was a graduate research assistant for Duke Law Associate Professor, where he conducted research regarding the racialized background of private equity markets in the United States. Before entering law school, he was a financial professional with a broad range of experience in quantitative and statistical analysis, budgeting, accounting, and forecasting. He held various positions, which included working as a business analyst for Axo Noble, interning as a sector analyst with Decatur Capital, and interning with Crawford Company in their finance department. He also interned with the executive office of the president at the White House as an operations intern, where he assisted in staff in overseeing presidential appointments, and assisted with system audits, training, and reporting. He earned his law degree from Duke University School of Law, JD 2016, where he's a research assistant for Duke's Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions. During his time at Duke, he served as the president of the Black Graduate and Professional Student Association, president of Outlaw, which was an LGBTQ law student association, and treasurer of the Duke University Hurston James Society. He completed his undergraduate degree at Georgia State University in 2011 with a major in finance. And he was most recently awarded 40 under 40 for LGBTQ Business Leaders of America, best lawyers under 40 in the country by LGBTQ Bar Association. And he was just a recent recipient during Black History Month of an Icon Award by GLAAD. So without further ado, as you can tell, I'm excited and I'm pumped up. I would like to introduce Seth Pearson to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. Appreciate it, G. I should get you to like introduce me every time I speak someplace. Hey, man. <laughs> just, get, just give me the call and I got you, man. Just give me the call and I got you, man. <laughs> Very glad to be with you. Very glad to be talking to you today. I'm excited to. No doubt, man. No doubt, man. So as we always do, before we get into the show, talk about the past, present, future, and all that good stuff, i like to start the show off with a quote. So, Seth, if you can share with us a quote or mantra that you live by and give us a story about how you apply that quote or mantra in your everyday life. Uh, sure. So probably the thing I, I realized at some point that every uh, every almost all the issues that I had in my life were of my own making. Mm -hmm. And at some point I had to stop waiting to be rescued and start slaying my own dragons because nobody was coming. And if I did it, I was just going to be there for the rest of my life, waiting on somebody to come and get me. So I, you know, I always say like, you got to start slaying your own dragons um, and get yourself out of the situation that you created for yourself. Um, and I really try to uh, uh, play that thing out in my own life. It, uh, it's been, it's been tough, but you have to tell yourself some really hard truths. Um, you know, some of my story is, that I, you know, I was, I flunked out of college twice. I was arrested uh, several times. Um, I was homeless in Atlanta at one point. Um, you know, there was just so much wrong with my life. And 
I got to a place where I was like, you know what, I got to free myself. And I told God, if you just give me a shot, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to start working hard to fix all the things that I've broken. And I've tried to do that in my life. And it's kind of how I got here. Man. You already said you already said a podcast full of stuff already, man. We can just go ahead and pack this thing up, man. Like this is because because I mean, you look online and you see the awards that you've received. You see the schools that you went to. You see the path that you are online now. Even even if you just look at not even talking about websites, let's just look at Facebook. And it's like, man, this is one of the most encouraging and funny guys. Like you, you encourage it, but you say you say some funny stuff too. Like, <laughs> but it's like you don't see that. And I, I, that's why I love having this podcast because so many times we walk by people in everyday life we come in contact with people and we see what they're doing now and we're encouraged but there's so much more to that story so on that note our first part of the podcast we always try to take everybody back to the past and i don't like to always go to the past because sometimes when i look about my past i'm like i don't even want to talk about that like we passed that but (laughs) i think it's very important for for our audience members to kind of build that commonality and see where we came from because i think that's the genesis of kind of what makes you who you are today so man if you could share with our audience a little bit about your background and who you are before you kind of made the made the changes and started slaying those dragons. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've always been very transparent about my story. Um, you know, I think a lot of people will look at where I am today. It's like, oh, Seth, you're you know you're a corporate attorney, you're a Duke Law graduate. Um, you know, you don't have you know you they they think that it's always been this way mm-hmm. and it very much was not this way. Um, so I graduated from high school in 1996 wow. and went to Tuskegee University. It was the only university I, I ever wanted to go to. Um, for some reason, I thought that I was going to leave Syracuse, New York, and go to Tuskegee, Alabama, and be <laughs> my whole gay self, and they were going to love me, uh-huh. and they did not love me. Um, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a really rough situation, and um I call that time in my life uh, screaming at trees Mm. because I had, uh, so in front of Bethune, uh, where I stayed, uh, the dorm I stayed on campus, there were a lot of trees out in front. And when you would walk to the cafeteria, you'd have to walk past the dorms and they could see you, but you couldn't see them. Mm -hmm. And so they would yell things at me from the window, Um, you know, faggot get out of here, gay boy, you know, because I was, I came to campus and I decided that I was going to be out. Mm-hmm. And so I would just stand there and scream at the trees because I was, you know, I was from New York. So I was like, I'm not no punk. You're about to just punk. Mm-hmm. So and you ain't I no small just, dude either. Exactly. I was no little, and that's what I'm saying. Like they never would say anything to my face because I was a little too big for that. But they would, they would definitely do things anonymously. They would spray paint fag on my door. They would call all night long. Um, you know, so I had to take the phone off the hook. And eventually it got to where I wouldn't even leave the room. Um, and it was really, uh, really depressing. Stopped going to class, stopped doing anything. And eventually I flunked out of school. Mm. I had my dad come and pick me up. And I went back home and I started working at Penney's. Wow. And uh, it was uh, really, really uh, made a lot of poor choices. Um, went back to school at the University of Buffalo. We had a much better experience. Um, they are also decided to just be out and people were a lot more accepting there. Um, and they were, but I was trying to be a chemical engineer. Mm-hmm. And so I had like a 3.89 average outside of my major. Mm-hmm. And in my major, I had like a 1.7. Wow. I failed every engineering class I took, every single one. Mm-hmm. And so my, 
uh, advisor was like, Seth, you, you've got to stop trying to do this. Like, you are, like, crapping and backing up in it. So you've got to make some different changes. And, and I just wouldn't because that's what mommy wanted me to do. And, you know, you do what mommy tells you to do. Uh-huh. Uh, so I ended up flunking out of school again. Wow. And this time, uh, it just, I was kind of done. Um, I eventually became a youth director for United Methodist Church. And I started working in the Buffalo City School District, um, at teaching a nonprofit curriculum um, in the Buffalo in a, uh, school called Riverside for mm-hmm. kids who were skippers and drug dealers and uh, disconnected kids. Um, and I was working at the Boys and Girls Club at night, so I was working, you know, eighty hours a week, you know, just making thirty thousand dollars a year, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just just trying to make things work. And um, eventually, I got to the point where I realized I, I could I could do this for the rest of my life. And, but I was encouraging these kids to go to school and their education is important. And um, I had not finished my degree. Mm-hmm. So I decided that um, I was going to up and move to Atlanta. Wow. And so I moved to Atlanta because I heard about a Hope Scholarship. And if you were a resident of Georgia mm-hmm. for a year, then they would pay for your school. Mm-hmm. And so I went there and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I had a friend who I wanted to speak with who lived there. And, said, and how old were you at this time? This was, I was like 27. By okay. This and um, got to Atlanta, things didn't work out, couldn't find a job, ended up homeless, living in my car. Um, I gotten several tickets, uh, speeding tickets, and you know, all kinds of stuff around the country. Mm-hmm. Driving around. So I, was, I had a suspended license, my registration was uh, suspended, no insurance on the car, inspection was expired. For I think 389 days, I was just riding dirty Man. until they finally got me and arrested me. Um, and uh, put me in jail. Uh, that that happened, I think, three times. Three times? Uh, yeah, three times. Uh, and I said that it was like debtor's prison. Like, I couldn't pay the ticket. So Yeah, uh, we, we can have a conversation all day about that. Um, yep, um, that's how the system is really crazy when it comes to those parking tickets. Absolutely. Especially for, you know, black yeah. brown folks. Oh, yeah. More than anybody else. So, um, you know, eventually I, I, I always say, like, it was, I was 28 years old. I threw myself a birthday party um, that nobody showed up to. I was sitting on the bar, uh, soaking wet because I had got caught in the rain and I had missed and I had to take the bus there and I got off on the wrong stop. Um, so I'm sitting at this bar drunk. I called my mother and told her that Jesus turned water into vodka and cranberry. And she told me I was a heathen. <laughs> and, you know, it was my rock bottom. And I sat there and I said, Lord, I am not going to die like this. I cannot do this every for the rest of my life. And I said, if you just give me a second, if you just help me, I can fix it. And I said, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And I'm going to work every single day from this point to make things better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time I was like 540 pounds. I mean, things were really, really tough. You were 540 pounds? I, 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 you were that? You got up to that, sir? At my biggest, I was 540 pounds. I was the biggest person people had ever met in real life. Wow. Um, it wasn't on television. And uh, things were just terrible. I remember being in my van and looking for a ketchup packet on the floor because if I could just find some ketchup, I could eat because I was so hungry. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I, things had just gotten terrible. Mm-hmm. And so I just, but after that, that birthday, I just started working every single day. 
I, you know, I couldn't pay all the tickets, but I could pay one ticket at a time. Uh-huh. I got another job. I got a set, you know, I got a job at United Healthcare working in a call center. And I got a job working at a, uh, a command center, a 24-hour command center. So I would work 8 to 5. And then on Fridays after 5, I would go to the command center and I'd work 6 to uh, midnight. And I would come back. I worked 16 hours on Saturday and 16 hours on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I did that for almost two years. Mm. Um, I could rehabilitate my loans because my student loans were all in default. So I took that year. I rehabilitated my student loans. I got back, um, got that back. I got into Georgia Perimeter, and um, I became a business major, and I got straight A's the first my first semester. So wow! I finally, was doing the thing the right way. Um, finished at Georgia Perimeter. I transferred to Georgia State. I uh, graduated from there with honors. Uh, went on to uh, to law school at Duke. Uh, in hold up! Hold up! Hold up! Let's 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 start let's start right there because that that. There's there's three things that there's three critical things that I want to ask you um, before we even get to the law school portion. Right. One of the first key things that I, I would like to ask is in reference to uh, I know when you first went to college at, at Tuskegee, um, you were you just chose to be out. Uh, at what age did you kind of realize that uh, that that you that you were that you were in fact gay? Like what what age was that, and how was that in in your household? How did how was that relation? So interesting. So it's interesting when I when I did get to law school, I wrote about this in my um, as my diversity uh, as my diversity essay. Um, I grew up in a house in a very very Christian household. Mm-hmm. Um, we were Church of God in Christ. My mother was Church of God in Christ. You know, you can't join and you got to be born and then my dad was Baptist. And so it was really, uh, you know, you could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Jay was not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, it was just holiness or hell. And so I grew up in an environment uh, that was incredibly loving. My, my family was incredibly loving, but they absolutely had no tolerance for anything associated with LGBTQ. You know, and we lived in a different time. But I think I was 16. I was, I was 16 years old. And I remember describing it uh, to a friend of mine. We were up on the football field. A, a girl named Alana Weissman Ward. She was the she was actually my principal's daughter. Um, and I told her, I said, I feel like I have a parasite in me. I feel like there's something that's taking over me, um, and I and I couldn't stop it. Um, I would do everything I could. Like I would electrocute myself. I would stick myself with, with pins when I would think about guys. Um, in, in a sexual way, um, anything I could do to not be gay because it was the only, I just wanted to be right. All, all I ever wanted was a family and to get married and, mm-hmm. you know, have kids and, you know, to do what the church told me I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually it got to a point where I, I just, I couldn't be somebody I wasn't. Um, and I, it, it hurt my feelings because I really felt like God had forgotten me, mm. you know, and it was like, how how did you forget me? Like, all I want is, you know, the same thing anybody else wants. I want somebody who's going to love me. I want a family. I, you know, I wasn't out here trying to, you know, uh, you know, in alleyways and yeah. backyards and stuff. I, I just wanted to be right. And uh, but what I realized uh, was that God had not condemned me. The church had condemned me. Mm-hmm. Society, culture had condemned. Um, but the Bible is ambiguous at best around homosexuality. Um, and if you really do the research, um, and, I, and I had to do the research for myself, 
and look and see what the Bible really had to say about this. Because I do believe in the Bible. I'm a Christian, you know, um, in my, from my heart. And I, and I realized that I had been taught a lot of the wrong things. Even at 16, you know, exploring it, it was like, this is not what anybody's teaching me from this pulpit. They didn't want him to. And God does love me. And there is a place for me in the church. And there's a place for me in the kingdom. And I can be a black, proud, gay, successful man. And I can be all of those things at the same time. Mm, that's That's a deep... Deep um, proclamation, man. And we're going to talk a, a, a little bit more in depth about what that role plays in your career and has played in school and everything else a little later in the show. But the second question I, 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 that ran through my mind out of the three before we even got to law school, too, as well, is how, how did your weight spiral out of control? Or were you like growing up, were you a little bit? overweight growing up or did it kind of spiral because nobody just goes and now you're 540 pounds like how did that how did it transform into getting 540 pounds at that time in your life so there was definitely uh and and, and i and sometimes i don't like to bring it up but uh, there was a history of abuse there for me um there when i was younger um i was you know kind of sexually assaulted by some other uh young boys Mm -hmm. um because growing up, I was very thin, actually, when I was younger. Uh, probably about 13 was when I started picking up weight. And it was around that time that I stopped playing with boys. Mm-hmm. Um, because I thought that all the boys would do to me what the other boys had done. Uh-huh. And so I just avoided large groups of men because it, they made me uncomfortable because I, I didn't want to be put into another sexual situation. Um, and so I stayed in the house. And I stopped going outside to play and stopped involving myself in any kind of sports. I was never super good at sports anyway, mm-hmm. but, um, but sports meant large groups of boys. And so I just avoided that altogether. And I started to eat. Eating was, was my comfort. Uh, I ate when I was happy. I ate when I was sad. It was a mood regulator. It was something to do when I was bored. Um, and eventually, um, it just spiraled out of control. Um, it, you know, became it became an escape for me mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, uh, and I was just I became an addicted to food. Wow, um, and that's and I, I can't wait. And like I said, we're going to discuss your journey back down because the people when they when they see this online, they see your picture online, they're like this that doesn't fly for that doesn't even compute. <laughs> but I, I just wanted to see how that got there. And my third question, and this question I. I'm glad I've been able to ask this because I really haven't been able to ask this question to anybody on the show because there's, there's, there's been a few that kind of could relate. But like I said, I, I for one, I've, I've been homeless for a little while in my life. I've dealt with the traffic situations, riding with a dirty license for years and then having to finally get that out. And now we're in a good, we're in a, we're in a much better place. But in my head, there's always, there's always some leftover scars and residue and it's not like typical back. And, and even though, and this is my thoughts. I want to hear your thoughts on it. But I, I would say it's not kind of like everybody else's maybe typical baggage because you, when you're homeless, when you, you don't have any place to stay, it's just there's certain things that you have to, you, you go through, you see, and it sticks in your brain. And even when you are out of it, there's certain, there's certain scars that you have. And of course it helps you be more relatable and transparent because you're not scared of your past because you're past that. But there are some things you hang on to and it's a struggle at times to kind of just, letting stuff go. So how do you deal with now? And like I said, I'm maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but now truly honoring your story, but also letting stuff go. Mm. I think um, 
So I think you never really let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, there's a song that says time heal. They say time heals all wounds. I don't agree. Every wound leaves a scar. They're all over me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very, very true. Like everything that has happened to you, you are a culmination of all the things that happened to you. And at some point, I just started to fall in love with the good and the bad. Um, I wrap myself in my trials and my tribulations as much as I do my triumphs, um, because I think they all have come together to make me who I am. So I have, you know, I definitely think about those times when I was hungry and homeless and had nobody to call and people said I would never be anything. Um, you know, my mother told me, she was like, I, when, when I graduated from law school, she was like, I, you know, I never thought you'd do, you'd be this. Like, I thought you'd work at JCPenney. She said, I thought you'd be okay, but I never thought you'd be this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that always, you know, it, it sticks with you. Um, but it also is the impetus that I use. I wrap, I use that as fuel. I wrap that thing around me cause I am never going back to that. I'm never going back to those hungry nights. I'm never going back to living in my car. I'm going to do everything I can do to make sure that I'm successful and I stay right here because I refuse. Man, I've been there. I've done that. I learned that lesson. Mm, that's that's powerful. And a last question before we kind of get to the law school speech, because I want to I want I got some pointed stuff I want to ask there is at the beginning on the quote, you, you talked about slaying dragons, right? What was the first dragon you had to slay or truth that you had to come to the grips with when you made that decision at 28 at that bar? drenched at night saying yo this is at a birthday party that nobody else showed up to after that night i know you changed things around but what was the first thing that you said i had to like come to grips with to actually move on and the reason why i asked is because i noticed somebody listening to this podcast that maybe they're maybe they're a little bit older than usual maybe their life is just it's just in a whole place where they don't want it to be and they're just they're, they're lost like what was that first dragon that you had to slay Oh, the very first dragon I had to slay, and the one I have to slay every day, is the realization that I did this. Mm. That I created this situation for myself. And I had to be an adult. And I, and I don't take people off the hook. I, and I, I don't think you can, you know, I don't take the people who abuse me off the hook. I don't take, you know, some, you know, like some people are just predisposed genetically to being bigger like that. You know, yes, that, that happens. But I overate myself to 540 pounds. You know, I... Uh, was not, uh, I didn't take control of my own academic and my own, uh, you know, educational success. I did, uh, decided that I was going to speed all around the country and get those tickets. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I did that. I created those situations. There are consequences to those situations. And there's reasons that I, that I made those decisions. But at some point, I had to begin to take ownership for what I could take ownership of and what I should take ownership of. Um, and I don't get into the whole respectability politics and, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and all that stuff. I think that's crap. But when you, you know, it, it's crap collectively when you look at a collective, look at us as a collective group of black and brown people, because our situation has been, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why we're in a situation that's a collective systemic racism, institutional racism, like preferences and prejudices and all those things that that very much contribute to why we are collectively in a difficult situation. But when you are an individual, as an individual, you have to examine what the decisions that you are making personally and try to figure out how to get yourself out of that situation. And I had to start to point to the things that I have done in the situations I created because otherwise I was going to continue to blame everyone else. And that's what I did up to that point. 
Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, well, if they had done this better, then I would be this person. And, you know, my parents didn't do this. So, you know, that's why I'm here. And this person hurt me. So that's why, you know, that's why I act like this. And and all of that, like, at some point, you just got to put the kibosh on it. Like, you know what? I broke it. I'll fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if I didn't break it, I'll fix it. Because I can. And I have the power to be anything I want to be. It ain't what they call me. It's what I answer to. Ooh. And what I believe myself to be. Yeah, man. Love that. Love that, man. So as we uh, do a brief transition to the law school space, man, which won't, we won't stay too long, but we, I think it's really important in your story. How did you build up that self-confidence tool to convince? And, 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 I'm, and I'm framing this question this way, but it, 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 it this, the answer might not go the way it's framed. But mm-hmm. what like the build up the self-confidence to not only say, OK, I'm going to go to law school, but I'm going to thrive in law school because, like you said, you just came from a situation. And of course, at 28, OK, now I, you, t- you took personal accountability. You started working, paying off debts, working more hours. And then now you went to Georgia Perimeter and then Georgia State. And now, now it's law school. But. What gave you that confidence to say that? Because sometimes when you go through the dramatic situation, you can bounce back. But sometimes the bounce back, it takes a little while to get your, your, your confidence back up to where it was, right? Probably when you left high school as far as academically and whatnot. So academically, what, what gave you that confidence to say to, to tackle that challenge of law school? So, uh, I will tell you, I, I got into this program. There was a, I, Going on, once I got to Georgia State and I started thinking about graduate school, I was deciding between an MBA and a JD. Um, and I had come upon, I was looking for scholarships for minority students. And I came across this program called Trials. And it was a joint partnership between Advantage Testing, Harvard Law School, and NYU Law School. And um, it was taking place at Harvard. There was like, you know, two, 3,000 applicants and they were chick- picking 20 people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, there's just no way I'm ever going to get this. And uh, I was like, but I'm going to apply. Let me see what happens. Um, I applied for it. And they called. They, we, I had a Skype interview. And eventually I got it. And so I got into that program. And it changed my whole life. Arun Aligapan changed my life. He was the person who was running that program. And it it got it took my LSAT score up 27 points from mm-hmm. my first taking um, we drilled for six weeks on this LSAT because and he designed the program specifically because people of color generally are not well equipped for not only the LSAT, but law school in general. We've been educated differently. You know, public schools are not educating kids the same way these private schools are educating young people. And, and generally that affects black and brown kids. And so I, I, just, I, I would never have been able to go to Duke. I would have never been able to be, be who I am without that program. Um, you know, intervening and changing my perspective. I, and I, I tell you, I never forget, I was sitting outside Harvard Law School um, and Dean Martha Minow came outside and she said, hi, Seth. And I remember calling my mother. I, I felt like Beyonce had said this. <laughs> I said, mommy, the Dean of Harvard Law School just said, hi, Seth. She knows my name. You know, it was it was just so meaningful. And trials gave me that, that, um, that aspect. I was like, you can't be what you can't see. I didn't even know all the things I could be. I didn't know what the possibilities were for me. Even You know, I knew like lawyer in general, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it meant to go to a certain type of school versus another type of school, depending on the kind of work you can do. I had never heard of private equity. Like I didn't even know what that was. And so being in that program and having people intervene and say, oh no, Seth, you have possibilities. There are all kinds of things that you can do and be. 
Like that was the thing that gave me the confidence to pursue this in a way that I had not pursued it up to that point. Man, that's huge. And, and the program is called Trials? It's called Trials. It's a, it's a program that's designed for minority students who are interested in law school. Um, and I tell you, anybody who has a chance should do, you know, should apply. It changed my life. Um, every year it's, it's either at NYU or it's at Harvard. It, it transfers uh, year to year. But Arun and his team are changing young people's lives and they're creating leaders and they're putting people out here who are going to change the world and, and saying, you know, he has no need to do it. He has absolutely no, uh, he doesn't have to do this. Like he's, he's a Harvard trained lawyer himself. He has a very successful testing, um, uh, testing company that does very well, but he wants to give back and he wants to create world changers. He wants to give black and brown folks the chance to do something spectacular. And, and, and it's just, I can't say enough about it. Man, uh, everybody that's listening, the link to that will be in the show notes. So make sure you check that out if you're interested. So on that note, when did you or when did you make the decision to transfer from Georgia State to Duke Law School? And how and, and what, what was the what was the deciding factor to do that? So uh, Georgia State, I, I got to Georgia State as a, as a one out. Um, I applied to Harvard. I applied to a bunch of other schools and I didn't get in, um, mostly because of my lackluster grades from Tuskegee and the University of Buffalo. You know, I had, you know, the, even though it had been kind of 10 years between Georgia State, um, you know, my, my undergraduate career in Georgia and my undergraduate career uh, previously, um, a lot of schools weren't willing to consider that. They mm-hmm. just took my aggregate GPA, you know, together. And, uh, and then Georgia State Law School gave me a really nice scholarship. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, I'm going to go here for a year and I'm going to work really hard. I always had transferring on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um but um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it. And uh, it, you know, once I got into law school, it was hard. It was much, much harder than I thought it would be. But I remember being on, um, I was watching Bloomberg one day. And the run who ran trials was on a panel on Bloomberg. And they were introducing all the different people there. And it was like, you know, such and such from Yale, such and such from Stanford, such and such from Duke, such and such from Harvard. And I was watching the show and I was like, Oh, if I stay here, I'll never get there. And that was the moment that I decided I had to transfer mm-hmm. because I knew I didn't just want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be the lawyer. I wanted to be an expert in my field. I wanted to be the person they call when there are emergencies around what I do. Like I needed to set myself apart. And so I needed to go and get an education that would allow me to do that. And I was older. So I didn't have the time that maybe some of my you know, other classmates had coming in at 23 or 24, um, you know, you can build a career that uh, that speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was going to school in my 30s. So I needed doors to open uh, immediately. Mm, got you. That's uh, yeah. Because I know some people listening like, what do you mean? You can do the same thing. It's like, hold up. In my situation, I'm 30. I didn't have seven, eight years to prove myself coming from like Georgia State. Like you can do it. But it's a, it's a little it's a different ball game when you when you're a little older doing it rather than like when you're doing it 23. So I, I'm glad you said that. And for those that have never been to law school uh, or anything, can you kind of describe for layman's term? Because people because I hear it all the time people say, oh, law school is difficult. You're just reading all these books. But how would you describe law school to somebody specifically at Duke compared to Georgia? State? Not, not, no, no, no comparing, but just like your experience at Duke. How would you describe law school to people that have never been? Um, well, I'll say, first of all, that Duke Law School was the best decision I've ever made. Um, Duke Law absolutely changed my life. I feel like Duke Law needed me. Um, 
to come right at the time that I came here. Um, we had so many situations and um, so many uh, so many uh, things that that needed addressing at Duke. And thankfully, we had a faculty and administrators who were not afraid to address those hard subjects and not afraid to engage in conversations, uh, particularly around uh, things that affected minority students. Um, so it was just, I, I can't say enough about how, what a hardcore dookie I am. Um, but I, uh, I, I think that law school, it was one of the most challenging things I ever experienced. Um, I had never been stretched in that way. It was, they ask you to think in a way that you're just not used to thinking. Mm -hmm. And I remember being, uh, even in my one year, I, I, I finished my, my first semester and I was on the phone with my best friend and I was crying and I was like, Lord, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, I don't, I, I don't think I can do this. And he was like, you have met every challenge in your life, boy. Are you crazy? Go in there and talk to your professor and figure out how to fix this thing. And it gave me a kick in my butt. And I went into my professor and me and her uh, had a conversation. I remember she, she, she was like, all right, Mr. Pearson, sit down. I'm going to show you how to do this. I'm going to show you how to brief a case. I'm going to show you what I want when I when I test. I'm going to show you how to how to be successful as a law student. And she sat with me for three or four hours mm -hmm. and went through how to brief a case and what she was looking for when she tested. And I, I tallied that course. I mean, I got the highest grade in contracts that that semester um, out of everybody in that class because she decided to take the time to sit with me and show me how to do this. So I, I really believe in like having professors that are going to sit down with you. And, and that was at Georgia State. And I found the same thing in my professors at Duke. They, they were willing to sit down and sit with me for hours at a time. Um, you know, Elizabeth DeFontenay, you know, Jim Cox, they were just amazing, amazingly open and warm and willing to share their knowledge in a way that I, you know, I had never experienced. So it was, you know, having, having, going to a school that's going to support you um, is really, really important in choosing law schools because law school is a challenge. Hmm. And with all that said, before we leave the law, the, the law school space, how did you, or did your, did your background story come up or how did you how did you embrace people had those conversations because some especially being at duke which is uh i mean everybody that goes there is not the most wealthiest but a lot of people are right and and, oh, and yeah. so people come with that you know people anybody knows about i believe in private schools it's definitely like and duke's not ivy but it might as well be um Ivy plus. I know, yeah. And then you come, and of course, you earned your right there. You got it, but you do have a, a, a big backstory. And then you have younger colleagues, maybe come from privilege. So, how did you, did you feel comfortable in that space? And the times that you didn't feel comfortable, what made you at ease? So, I think because I was older, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just walked in there and I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I, my mother had always told us, she was like, you know, you, are, you aren't better than anybody, mm -hmm. but nobody is better than you. Ooh. And so I walked in there with that attitude, like, you know, we, uh, you know, y'all can sit here and, and talk about all the excursion that your family took and where you, you know, where y'all vacationed in, in uh, uh, Lord, I can't even, you know, in Ibiza or <laughs> Santa Rain and, you know, I, and I went to, you know, Atlanta, <laughs> <laughs> Charlotte, you know, Charlotte, <laughs> you know, um, you know, ain't got a stamp on my passport yet. But, you know, I, I what I have is life experiences and things that have richly deepened my life. Um, I can speak to things in a way that people who have had privilege can't speak to. 
Um, I, I, I have life experiences that I wouldn't give up for anything in the world that I think are just as valuable, um, I think more valuable than people who, you know, been raised uh, with that silver spoon in their mouth. And I don't take anything away from that because you can't help how you were raised. If you were raised with money, but I, I'm, I'm going to have me some money and my kids will have money too. Um, so they'll have, you know, they're going to have a different experience, but I'm going to ensure that my kids, you know, have, have experiences that deeply, richly, um, you know, uh, fill their lives. So, and, and make sure that they're not so separated from how, most people live because most people do are not wealthy. You know, most of us are not the 1%. That's why there's only 1% of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think going into those spaces, you can feel intimidated. I didn't particularly feel intimidated. Um, but there were definitely times when I was, um, you know, you couldn't tell that they assumed that I didn't know as much as they knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, what, you get into these group situations and you're the only brown face there, um, they, there's this assumption of incompetence immediately um, that you haven't had the experience there. There's a dismissal of your ideas um, when you offer them. Um, I definitely experienced that, uh, but you have to fight your way back. Um, and I was willing to do that, and I had the, and I was equipped to do that because life had, you know, had tried to beat me down, but I never let it win. And I sure wasn't gonna let somebody. With a, that I grew up with a whole lot of money <laughs> on me. If I didn't let life destroy me, I'm not going to let, you know, this person uh, right. intimidate Yeah, man. So as we, as we move on to past law school, what, what would you say was your top, your top, one, do two the two takeaways from your law school experience in general, that whole chapter, because I mean, you, you just, like I said, four or five years ago, you were just working at, at a call center at, at JC Paintings, and now you're in this intellectual environment and it's challenging too. It's not like you just have to deal with like mental stuff. No, it is challenging. You are getting pushed farther than you ever have. So when you're done with that experience, before you took the bar, but you were graduated law school, like when you reflected, like what did, what did it, what, what was it like? Um, so it, it was funny as you say, I had a, a mentor named Ed Snow. So, uh, when I was, I have a friend named Joshua Alston who was at a conference. He met this, this lawyer, had no idea who the lawyer was and was like, yeah, my friend is interested in the law at the time I was working at the call center. And Ed, uh, turned out to be one of the largest partners, corporate partners in Atlanta. And Ed came up and on my lunch break, when I was working at United Healthcare in the, in the call center, came up and had lunch with me. We talked about law school and some of the possibilities. I, I, I wasn't anybody at that time. And this man was you know, making millions. He was a partner in Atlanta and took the time out to come and talk and have lunch with me. And we've had lunch every year from that point. So he's watched me uh, you know, build my career. But having people like that, you know, he, he's what I aspire to be when I talk about, you know, being able to give back in the space that I'm in now. I have so many mentees and people that I mentor now because people like him, when I was nobody and nothing, were willing to come out and, and sit with me and have conversations and encourage me to do what I'm doing. Um, but to, to your to your question, so the, the takeaways, um, the takeaways from law school, I, I take away from, the same thing I take away from most of my experiences is that I have the power to create anything I want in my life. That I am not limited by my past. I, I tell people, they told me I was never going to be nothing that I wouldn't be anybody. When I flunked out of school the first time, I came back home to my church, and this woman 
said, she said, I thought you were in school. I said, yeah, I left, I left but I'm going to go back. She said, you won't go back. Mm. And walked away from me. And I, it hurt me so bad, and I resented it so much. And I promised myself that I was going to go back. I don't care what nobody has to say about me. And, 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 and I take that with me today. I don't care what people say about me and what I've done and who I've been. None of that means, none of that has anything to do with where I'm going and what I'll be. Mm. And uh, so I, I, I really, I, I take a lot of strength from that. Um, and also I think uh, just a sense of community, knowing and understanding that none of us do this by ourselves. Um, I have a community of people um, from Georgia State, from Duke, from Syracuse, from D.C., from Atlanta. Like I, I have this incredible people, a family and friends who have supported me and lifted me up and are there for me. If I call them right now and say I'm in trouble, they are on their way. They are the reason I've been able to do the things that I've been able to do. So I, I did not do this by myself. Um, I could never have done it by myself. You have to have people around you who are in your corner, who are encouraging you. I was very purposeful about the people that I put in my life. You know, everybody can't walk with you. Everybody won't journey with you till the end. You know, but there are some folks that some good, solid people that you need to you need to take a look. I, I remember I spent a long time. I said to myself, I spent a long time trying to get people to pay attention to me that didn't want anything to do with me. And I wasn't paying attention to the people who really actually wanted my time and wanted to spend it with me and really loved me. And I think we can do that sometimes. We look at people who are over there and we want to be over there. And so we so we want to give them our attention. But there are some people right here next to you walking this journey with you, encouraging you. That's where you need to put your energy and your time. Like those are the people that are going to walk with you. Um, and so I really I, I try to I try to walk that thing out in my life. Man, that's that's powerful, and I have nothing to add on that, man. So, uh, you, so you now you, you were done with you were done with law school. So, how was the bar, man? I, 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 before oh, I begin geez. to what you do now, how was how was the, <laughs> how was that bar, man? How long did it take you to prepare for that, man? Like, how was that experience? Because it's like that's crazy. People graduate from law school, they're happy, and then you like you have a whole other exam. It's like, damn, we got more. It was the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> I, I failed bar exam. I, I, I. Have Never been that stressed. To think about the fact that you spent all this money, you took out all these loans, you spent all this time to get to this place, and if you do not pass this one exam, all of it is for nothing. <laughs> like, you might as well not go to law school because you're not going to work for no law firm. You know, you might be able to go and do something different. Uh, and, and to try to cram three years of an education into this one exam, um, it is just a monumental um, a crazy kind of haul. And I, I, I thank God for Duke and Georgia State for preparing me to be able to be successful in taking that bar. But it, it, it was it was it was a really rough road. And I didn't take a lot of bar classes. So I didn't take any of I didn't take evidence. I didn't take Crim Pro. I didn't take any of the classes that were kind of bar courses um, that were electives because I knew I wanted to do corporate law. Mm-hmm. So I took the corporate law electives. Um, you know, I took private equity and hedge funds. I took things that, you know, I, was, I took some classes at the business school. I took the things that I was interested in that I thought would make me successful in my career. And, you know, some, some people would have truly strongly advised against doing that. It made a much, much more stressful time for the bar exam because I was being introduced to topics I had never heard of. You know, I, I had no idea what hearsay was before I started studying for the bar. 
No, I, I mean, I've heard of it, but I had no idea what it, it was essentially. I had to learn those things um, to get ready for the bar exam on top of refreshing things that I had already, you know, I had, that I had classes in before. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, it was tough. It was, it was, it was a haul, man. Ah, oh, I bet. Well, I'm glad you passed that. So now, if we, if we look to present day, <laughs> as we look to our present day, man, as we, as we, as we begin to come to a close, man, we look to our present day and, and, and what you do in law. Because I know growing up and even to this day, honestly, you, we have this, this, this one picture of what a lawyer is, right? Law and order. You're sitting there and you're arguing, you're doing that. Then you look, you see, uh, uh, you, you see prominent lawyers that represent people on different clients. But I didn't realize until I got a little older that there was a, a lot, there was so many other things you could do in law. Like there's some people that, that, that didn't even practice law. So if you could describe what your role is and what you do in the current day, like what do you really do? Like what does it look like? Absolutely. So, um, so I work in private equity um, in the private equity venture capital group of my firm. Um, we're actually now called Transactions. We've uh, become a larger group that does some traditional M&A work, um, uh, some public company works. And, you know, I do most of my work on the private side with companies. Um, I do a lot of startup work with entrepreneurs who are just beginning ventures or looking for their, you know, Series C, Series A financings. Um, you know, they're in the you know, some in the, even in the convertible note round, when you're really in the startup, have no money, but they have this, these amazing ideas. Um, and I, I really love that work. I love working with entrepreneurs because they're so excited about what they do. Um, and they're so excited about the ideas that they're bringing to the table. And to be able to watch them come to fruition and to become a trusted business advisor as that company grows um, and goes through its life cycle is something I'm, I'm really, really enjoying. Um, you know, some of the companies that I started uh, with, you know, two, two years ago, two, almost three years ago, are now really becoming flourishing companies. And, uh, and they call me to this day. It's like, Seth, we're doing this and we're doing this, and I'm not sure, you know, how, if, if this is a decision I make, that I should make, and what's market out here. And, and to be able to advise them is uh, awesome. Um, I do a little bit of investment management work with uh, hedge funds and uh, private equity fund, with the pitching funds we're making alternative investments into hedge funds and private equity funds. And so we do some of the work on that end, um, which I also enjoy. It's been, it, you know, that's, that's, that's awesome work. Uh, I was, I was working on some, uh, some really cool stuff around, uh, uh, you know, uh, dementia and, and trying to, uh, um, do some, uh, we had some, we had some clients that were doing some work to try to combat dementia mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, I, I do the paperwork around that stuff, but, but that kind of gives my life meaning. Like it gives my work meaning to be able to do things like that. Um, Cause somebody has to do. Yeah. So what question, well, our question there is cause I've heard advising, I heard investment management and doing, and, and doing paperwork. Like what does a, what does a lawyer have to do? Like, how does that play in? Because like I said, m- many of us, including myself, I know lawyers do other things, but, when you're advising, are you advising from a legal perspective? When you like, how 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 do how do you fit in? How do your experiences and your expertise as a lawyer fit into doing those tasks? Yeah, and I, so one of the things a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, I think, are hesitant to engage lawyers at the early stages of their, um, you know, creating of their company. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of things you want to consider when you're starting a company, a new company, uh, and lawyers can help you to avoid mistakes that'll come later. You know, we, I, a lot of my clients uh, will don't understand that nothing that you do matters when you have no money. <laughs> and 
Nobody cares what you do. You can give away all the equity in your company you want. You can do anything you want. You can violate all kinds of securities laws when you have no money. What matters is when you, you know, you get that first million dollar investment on this amazing idea and everybody comes back to sue you. And, mm. you know, the, the uncle of the friend that you gave 2% of your company to when you first started, now six years later comes back and says, you know, he, he wants to cash in on this, on this stock that he owns in your company and he wants $6 million for something because he you know, gave you two neckties and you gave him 2% of your company. Um, so like, I, I think what lawyers do is really help um, companies avoid pitfalls that will happen later on when they become successful. Mm. So you want to make sure that your paperwork is all in line and that the contracts that you're, that you're, um, that you're signing and that you're, um, issuing to people and engaging in are all on up and up. And because when you do, it's not if you will be sued when you become successful, it's when you will be sued. Like you will be sued if you are a successful business. And so engaging attorneys like myself early on in, this, in, in the early stages of the business, though it can be expensive, um, it's just a smart business Yes, yeah, smart investment, smart investment. And speaking of smart investments, uh, you've you've done over the last couple of years, man, invested a lot in your personal health, and as far as with your weight management and order. So, can you tell the audience, if you mind saying, what what your weight is now? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I am around two fifty five, uh, two sixty. Um, I've waffled in between there. I'm trying trying to get down to two twenty. That is the that's the goal. But, uh, but yeah, I started at 540 at my largest. So how in the world? I know this is that's a podcast in itself, but we don't have <laughs> uh, we we may get you where we have to do something. I don't know how I don't know how you could get tackle that. But for our audience members right there, like how did you how did you how did you lose 300 pounds? <laughs> yes, so it was definitely a journey. <laughs> a a um, journey that's like three lifetimes. Like most people lose 60, 100, but 300 that's like three. Seriously, that's like maybe three to six lifetimes of losing weight, man. So, like, where where do you even start? Oh, it was so. It, I remember the re- so one of the reasons I did it. I I gone to the BT Hip Hop Awards, uh-huh. and um, I had it was at the Civic Center in Atlanta, and I was sitting there. Um, you know, the seats were really really tight, and not only was I five hundred forty pounds, I was six foot three. Uh-huh. So I'm this huge hulking person. I can hear the people behind me complaining that they can't see uh-huh. because I'm literally like it's blocking their view. Um, and then it was a live broadcast, not a live broadcast, but they were you know, they were taken, so you couldn't move. So I had to sit there for three and a half hours. And so when finally let us get up, I tucked like I could feel that the sides of my pants were wet, and I didn't realize that the uh, the seats had dug into my thighs and I had been bleeding from my thighs for three and a half hours. Are you serious? Until, yeah. Until the pants had stuck, the blood had dried to my sides and I was in so much pain. I had to pretend like it wasn't happening because I was with my friends and I was embarrassed. And, um, I said, okay, I have to go. And I remember I walked out, walked out of the civic center and someone was driving by in the car and yelled out of the car window. You fat as F. And it was just like, it just added insult to injury for me. And what hurt me more than anything was that my friends all pretended like they didn't hear it mm-hmm. um, because they were embarrassed too. Um, and it, it just was like, not only am I embarrassing myself, I'm embarrassing my friends and I have to make a change. So I went to the doctor and um, 
because this was just a, a demon I, I couldn't I couldn't beat. You know, I, I had beat almost everything else in my life. You know, at this time I was looking at law school. I worked in the White House for the President of the United States, the first black president, the real one, not this new one. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so like, you know, I, I've been able to, you know, meet the first lady, uh, who was also a big impetus for me. You know, I like meeting her and, and the Let's Move campaign was, was so, you know, inspiring to me. Um, it was like, I've got to do something about my weight. And um, I, uh, my doctor said, he's like, Seth, you got to forgive yourself. You got to stop blaming yourself. He said, he put my stomach on the screen. He said, most people's stomachs are the size of a fist. He's like, Seth, your stomach is the size of a football. You are hungry all the time. And he said, you will be hungry all the time. You will never be able to beat this until we go and do something about it. And you're going to end up 700 pounds if you don't, if you don't do something. So I had gastric sleeve surgery in 2013. And so they took out 80% of my stomach and they left me with 20%, which was about the size of my esophagus. Mm-hmm. And so that was my tool. And my doctor said, he said, this is a tool set. You will get fat again if you do not use this as a tool. And probably a week after my surgery, I started to walk. And I went from walking to running. And then I started going to the gym. And I started going to the gym every day. And it became my place. And I think it also became a very communal place for me. Um, And as I started to lose the weight, people were, you know, would see me. And guys would come up and be like, you know, encouraging me and like, come on, man, I see you out here. Keep on pushing, doing your thing. And I started making friends who worked out together and I worked out with them. And, um, you know, a lot of my friends were very fitness oriented. And and so it became a place that felt good and strong and like a community. Mm-hmm. And that was really, really important to me. And, um, and, and it's gotten me to the place in my fitness um, where I am today. Man, that's 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 huge. That's huge on so many different levels, man. And it's crazy now as 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 we begin to come to a close. When I think about your story from where you started, the trials and tribulations of even law school, the stuff that you had to deal with as far as with your weight, with your life situation, as well as during this whole time, you're still uh you're you're still a black male, so you're dealing with that stuff too in all these spaces. As well as, and, and, and what I, the challenge, not a challenge, but as well as, uh, also being gay this whole time as well. And the stuff that this, the different stuff that comes with that. So when you think about diversity now, and, I, and that's why I'm glad we're having the show. When you think about diversity, what does it mean to you? And how have you been able to, and, and I guess the bigger question is, how do you balance the role of being a leader, maintaining a positive career trajectory, but also standing for what you stand for. So not letting stuff slide because you know, once you start letting stuff slide, it may not hurt you because you've been through enough. You're old, you're mature. Boom. But those behind you, that other 23 year old is struggling with something inside and they're trying to do all this other stuff. So that's why I believe that you, you're one of your big, the biggest advocates do, they're all having all these awards, having these leadership stake and really having some skin in the game, not hiding who you are, but being transparent and really advocating. So, how do you even deal with all that, man? Because it seems like you really, it, it's a lot to, uh, it's a lot that you have to bear. Mm-hmm. It, it is. It, I mean, it's a heavy weight, but, but I always say, like, I, I, I think that God gives you these things for you to deal with because He knows you can handle them. Mm-hmm. And everything that happens to you is for somebody else. Every blessing you get is supposed to pass through your hands into the next person's hands. 
And so I, every, my whole life is dedicated to making sure that whoever comes behind me has a softer landing than I had when I got here. I may not ever meet those people, but I have to plant these seeds. I have to create a space for little boys and little girls, little black and brown folks who look like me who want to get to where I'm going. I need to create paths for them because you could open a door across town, but if you don't create a path to get to that door, that's not equality. That's not access. So you have to create access to those places. And I grew up, you know, as a black gay boy, not being, not seeing anyone like me, not seeing relationships, successful black gay relationships, not, you know, not seeing people support black gay love in, in, any spaces at all, not seeing myself represented anywhere, not believing that I could ever be happy, that I could ever have a family, that I could ever have children, that I could ever have anything, you know, being tolerated and not celebrated. I lived like that. And I refuse to, to not advocate for people who are coming behind me not to have had that, not to have that experience. And and so I am a black man. So I, I fight for black and brown folks all over the place because injustice, you know, it's, it's not just about what happens at the intersection. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I am a black, I'm a gay man, but I'm also a black man. And so all the things that affect, you know, people, you know, black folks, black and brown folks affects me, too. And so I advocate for those things. Um, you know, I, I'm on the front lines and I and I and I do the demonstration. And I'm out at these protests and I'm and I'm and I and I scream and I bring my whole self to work. I'm unapologetically black. I bring all of that with me to this job. I live in Boston. Where there are, <laughs> I mean, there's like two of us. I mean, like there are eight. There are seriously eight black partners in this entire city. Wow. Like not eight percent, eight black partners here. And so I have to be a representative. I have to be a real representative for folks that look like me, and I have to be an advocate for folks that look like me. Um, and I have to, I have to also be an advocate for people who love like me. And you know, because because we are underrepresented as well. And, and so it's, it is, it's a heavy burden to have to bear, but I will bear it. And I will, I will bear it for people that come behind me who I may never, ever meet. Um, because that's my responsibility, because somebody did it for me. Because Mayor Rustin did it for me. Because James Baldwin did it for me. Because Langston Hughes did it for me. Because, you know, uh, uh, everybody did it for me. Because Martin Luther King did it for me. Because Malcolm X did it for me. You know, uh, Ruth Jameson did it for me. Like, like people came in front of me, you know, Folks got sprayed with hoses and dogs set on them so I could have the right to vote, so I could have the right to be here. I was one of the most powerful things that ever happened to me. Um, I was in OCI, which was our on-campus interviews, and I was interviewing with a firm, and they had the bio of the lawyer that I was going to be interviewing with on the door. And so I was reading through his bio. And the deals that he had just recently done was like this $4 billion deal for Crystal Myers Squid. And I was reading through and I sat up there, I was sitting outside waiting waiting for this interview and I started to cry because my grandmother, my big mama, my great grandmother, um, whose name was Idelia Lee, who was the daughter of a sharecropper, her most prized possession was this plaque that she had gotten for 20 years of service working for Bristol Myers Squibb. And, but my big mama worked for Bristol Myers Squibb as a janitor. And so she swept up after those white men, because at the time it was just white men, you know, who worked in that office. And so it wasn't because it was the only thing she could do, because big mama was incredibly intelligent. 
it was the only thing that she was allowed to do mm. was to let her sweep up after these men and be standing as her great-grandson about to walk into this room and interview for a position with someone who had just did a $4 billion deal with this company where I could have been sitting on the other side of that. I just can't imagine what my big mama would be feeling knowing that this had happened, knowing that she, because she swept up for me, I get to come and walk in this room and have a conversation about getting a job with this man who had just done this billion dollar deal. I just think, like, I know that this is not how my life had to turn out. You know, it didn't have to be this way. So every single thing that I have is a blessing. Mm. And so I work for those folks that are gonna come behind me. You know, and I do whatever I can to make sure that they're going to have the kind of landing that my big mama allowed me to have. Wow, that's a that's a powerful, powerful story to kind of now that I'm thinking of that snapshot of the of and and, and the footsteps that you're walking on and, and also the footsteps that, that you are or the trail that you're creating for the future, man. And before we get into our future round and then our last culture chain rapid fire round, I did want to ask one question. In regards, and you know, in the state of America right now, there's a lot of stuff going on, and for a variety of different people, uh, for people that are, are are dealing with poverty, for Black and Brown folk, uh, uh, for Latino folk, for uh, for people that are coming in, it's just a lot going on. But specifically in, let's talk about African American culture. Um, a lot of times, there's always a charge for us to be united, to be to act as one, and to be to be tight, and all that's good stuff. But then we think about our Black males, and we think about the relationships or the lack of relationships and working together with black males, but also black males that maybe that, that, that are gay. And I think there's a huge, I wouldn't say, I don't know if it's a divide as a gap, but they're just, we don't, we don't know. And I, even, even myself growing up, I, I know my parents grew up in an age where they, they, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the exact history of it, but I, I don't think as many people were out back in the day. And my parents, yeah. So my parents, me growing up, I, I was I was taught a lot of things. So when I was when I got into college or or high school or even as a young adult, I found it kind of hard to be comfortable in certain spots with people that that look like me, went to work, but a homosexuality. And, and, and the bias wasn't coming from me; it was becoming from stuff that I heard back in the day. So I, I say all this to say, like, what what can we do, or what would you suggest that we? What would you like to see? happen it doesn't have to be like some big program but as far as building no like i, I don't even know if they've been in relationship but just like strengthen this as a black culture specifically our black males how do you think we can kind of start bridging that gap because it's 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 there's so much that that is we've learned that is wrong and there's no way we're all gonna move on one accord if if if, if, if we're not all together in some in some capacity it, what's interesting i, I think you're, you you really hit a nail on the head What's always interesting to me is how people don't recognize the intentional way in which minority groups are uh, dissected and, um, and, and and forced to create these divisions. Mm -hmm. um, and we are much weaker when we are divided than we are together. I've always said that poor white people and minorities decided, realized that most of their uh, interests aligned. <laughs> you would change the world. You would create a revolution. But as long as they continue to keep this divide between poor white folks and minorities, they can control both of us um, because we can never come together. And the same thing will happen in the black community. You have you know, LGBTQ people 
who are leading the charge on so many um, mm -hmm. civil rights issues that have nothing to do specifically with being LGBTQ. But you look at Black Lives Matter, that was started by queer women of color. You look at uh, many of our leaders, you know, historically, James Baldwin and Elaine Locks, like, you know, these were queer men of color. Like, these were, you know, queer, queer folks have been putting ourselves on the front lines for black folks for a very, very long time and then being disrespected mm -hmm. by that same community and being ostracized by that same community because of the misinterpretation of scripture that has said to these folks that we are dirty and that we are gross and that, that we are not, that we're not worthy of the same kind of considerations that, that they're considering. But it, it's an intentional way to divide our community and it's a way that makes us weaker. So I think we have to start having real conversations about about homosexuality, you know, about lesbianism, about trans, um, you know, people like, uh, you know, having conversations creates an understanding um, in ways that, that are just unbelievable and powerful. And so creating forums in which you can have these real conversations about what it means to be a black gay man in this country and what it means and, and how straight you know, heterosexual men feel in relationship with homosexual men and, and why there's this discomfort and where does that discomfort come from? And is that a real thing or is that something you've just learned your whole life? Um, you know, like you said, you've had these experiences that tell you that something is wrong. You don't know anything about it, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and you do the same thing. You do the same thing that a lot of folks do to Muslim people. Like you have no idea about the Muslim faith. You don't know what Muslim people study, but you have imputed on this entire group of people this idea that you have about who they are because you've never had a real conversation with them. And I will say if you have, if you're uncomfortable with gay men, it's because you have never had a conversation with a gay man. Like you don't really understand what it is to be me in America and to and the kind of issues that I face on a daily basis from my own community, from outside of my community, sitting at this intersection is a very difficult place where you feel like as, as a black gay man, you have no place in the black community. As a, as a black gay man, you have no place in the gay community because that's the, the white, white gay men are probably one of the most racist riddled communities that you would ever experience. And that's wow. just, I mean, that's just a matter of fact. There is very few spaces for people of color in, um, in, in, gay, in traditionally gay spaces. So you sit at this intersection where you feel like you don't belong anywhere. And that's a really, really hard place to be. Not, not, to, not to even mention what, what, it must like to, what it must be like to be a trans person, particularly a trans, uh, you know, a trans woman of color, like to, to wake up and feel like you are in the wrong body your entire life. I can't imagine what that must feel like. You know, I don't have that struggle. I don't understand that struggle, but I've, I've had to sit down and talk to sisters of color that are experiencing these things so I can get an understanding, so I understand where people are coming from. And there's just some compassion and kindness that goes into that. So I think if we start to treat people with compassion, with kindness, understand that we're walking in with our own prejudices and things that we've been taught, but we really don't know until we have a conversation with somebody what their life experiences are. Mm. You said so much there, and I know this podcast is just a, a small step in the right direction, but I definitely hope, and I know that you will definitely over the next couple of years be a champion in certain, because there's other things, there's so much more that can happen. I think what you said, we'll just spot on. It doesn't need to be a, a crazy big initiative or whatnot, but I, th I think it just starts with beginning to have, open the molds of that communication and not just be something that backdoor is discussed or discussed among people of the same minds. 
Something you can just say. And I think that's just just like when we uh, just some other day. Well, I think well, I don't know what we was talking about. Some somewhere in church are talking about um, dealing with homeless people and how many times we give money, but we never really understand or or, or, or hear their story or, or talk to them. And the same thing, same things in so many different other situations. And that's how you could really build that empathy piece rather than just say, having fake empathy or, or or all these things, whatever. So. I hopefully, hopefully this is like a step in the right direction. But I think there's so much more steps to be had because like I said, specifically when I taught and I, and I saw students that, that struggled and I saw, uh, the apathy from, especially if we're talking about Title One, Title One schools and schools that go through like the, 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 the amount of disrespect and the stuff that I've seen. I can only imagine how, the, how it's, it's hard to even go through school and then was dealing with parents and whatnot. So I, that's why I really am. Encourage that uh, not only you coming on the show, but the work that you are doing, um, because it has huge, huge implications for, for, for the future. Um, yeah. and because you know, you listen to music and whatnot, even if you see on TV now that I'm, I'm starting to learn more about bias. And now that I, when I watch like regular sports shows or anything else, it's like, dang, man, it's just, there's so much bias going on. And so I know it's, I, <laughs> and you have these kids, you have kids that are really killing themselves. Like you, they, like, committing suicide because they think they're dirty and filthy and that no one will ever love them because they happen to be gay. But I think there's a, there has to be a call for our brothers and sisters to represent us in the same way we represent you. You know, as, as queer people of color has, have stood on the front lines for all of us, for all people of color, in so many situations, we do have an expectation that our heterosexual brothers and sisters will stand up for us when we're not in the room and y'all are in the locker room and they talking about us and they dogging us and they calling us, you know, fag this and fag that, that somebody will stand up and be like, your brothers, y'all are wrong. And you need to have a real conversation with these brothers and sisters to really understand where, how they're walking and how they're moving. Because they'll say things to you when you're in the room that they would never say when I'm not, in, when I'm, in, you know, as an out, you know, as an out black man, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that we challenge our white, you know, uh, Caucasian brothers and sisters that when we're not in the room to say, to speak up for us, the same way we challenge men to have conversations in the room when they're talking about women to speak up for women, you know, like you have to have, you know, advocates and allies who are in these spaces when y'all are having real, you know, you know, private conversations that are going to speak up for us because we can't speak in places where we can't speak up for ourselves. And that's why I think advocacy and allyship is so, so important, because otherwise you, you'll never be able to root out that thing, because you're not going to talk to white folks. They're not going to talk the same way with black people in the room that they are going to talk when there's only white people in the room. And if none of the white people who don't feel, who feel, you know, feel differently will not speak up for us, then nothing is going to change. Hmm. Last question on this. So is when you speak of allyship, is that is that is there is there a organized way or is it more so just in in, in, in the in your own collective spaces being an ally? Like what is is there is there is there programs or there's opportunities to be ally? Like what does that what does that look like or is it is it multifaceted? Yeah, there's lots of ways that you can be become an ally. Like there are there's there's formal ways. There's you know, in almost every organization, if you work for a corporation, there are, you know, affinity groups. And you could join any of the LGBTQ groups as an ally. Um, you know, white people could join black affinity groups as an ally. Um, you know, those spaces generally are de- dedicated to people who are, you know, who are a part of those groups to have a kind of a normative experience in a place where they can have a collegial experience with people who have, 
you know, similar experiences, but you, but a lot of them have ways in which you can join those groups as an ally. And then you can, like I said, just be a representative in spaces that we are not. When you sit in a barbershop and they start talking about, you know, you know, dogging out, you know, queer people, like somebody can speak up, speak up and, and let them know that it's wrong. You know, when they start talking about women and, and doing, you know, speaking derogatorily about women, men need to stand up and say that this is wrong and this is not the kind of conversation that you have as a man. You know, I, I, I just I challenge people to be allies, to be in private, the same person you are in public. Like to, when y'all when nobody is watching, be a hero. Fight the battle that you that you can't win. I always say that heroes are people who fight battles that they know they cannot win. We fight poverty. We know the poor will always be among us, but that does not mean we don't fight poverty. We know that racism will always be always be with us because of the original sense of this country. But it doesn't mean we don't fight racism just because we'll never get rid of it. We continue to fight this thing. We fight homophobia. We fight transphobia. We fight Islamophobia. We fight misogyny. We fight all of these things despite knowing that it will always be with us because you have to fight if you're going to be a hero. Mm. Be a hero in the dark. That's powerful, man. You that wow, that's the boom. That's that's the title of this podcast, man. So as we as we read <laughs> Be a, that wow, that's powerful. Be a hero in the dark. You said a man. I'm not even going to add anything to that, man. So uh, before our coach change round, we always ask this last question about the future. Uh, when it's all said and done, how do you want to be remembered, man? I want to be one of the good guys. I want to be somebody when everything is over and I close my eyes, I want folks to say Seth tried to do his best. Seth did the best he could to leave this place a little bit better than he got it. And that dad was a good brother and he is going to we will miss him. Mm, love that man love that so our culture change round is a series of five rapid fire questions we get back rapid fire answers and we close up the show man you ready to rock i'm ready to rock what is the best piece of advice that you have never received never received um uh nobody ever nobody nobody told me what i could have could have been i wish somebody told me when i was young what I could have been. It would have changed the trajectory of my life. Mm, love that. So it's uh, food for thought for all the, all my people out there to have. It, and it's not just contact. And I think one thing critical that you that you said during the podcast, I didn't get a chance to double back on, is that when you did have the meeting with with the, with the older gentleman, when you had the call center, it wasn't like you were eighteen or fifteen. You were you were a grown man. And I think it's it's a challenge for us as listeners to tell some of our friends that maybe struggling what they could be. Not just because you don't mm-hmm. have to do that just to kids. Even some, it, it is not an age marker on that. No, no. And I, I think that there's a lot of energy that is directed toward young people, and it should be. Um, I take absolutely nothing away from that. The, the young people are our future. But just because you're 27, 28, 35, does not mean your life is over. Just because you're 40, like you can change everything today. You can become a different person and live the next part of your life in triumph, you know, in joy, you know, regardless of what has happened before. Don't think that your time is up. It ain't over until it's over. Mm, love that, man. Look at Seth been, Seth been giving life the whole podcast. Boy, good <laughs> go. If you could if you could add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? Uh I take away French fries. Lord, <laughs> if I could just get rid of French fries, I could change my life. Um <laughs> and probably, you know, adding just another level of discipline. 
um, I'm very, I get very easily distracted if all the yarn roll by and I'm gone for like an hour. <laughs> so like just being able to add, you know, a little bit more focus and discipline and attention, um, you know, I, I think would, would be awesome. I, I present the world. <laughs> what is the favorite book that you have read over the last year and why? Uh, I, I'm in the process right now of reading The New Chicken Crow by Michelle Alexander, which is absolutely changing my life. Um, was a young uh, man named Adam Foss. Uh, I heard on, I was listening to him talk on the Nantucket Project, and he said, you know, son, go out here and read The New Jim Crow. And so I started reading that, and it's it's a life changer. Oh yeah, I've, I've I've read that a couple times, and man, like I got to read it again because it's, it's so much. To, it's so much in there. So much, so much going on in there. Yeah, so I try to get. I try to sneak. I was in Starbucks. I mean, uh, where was it? Barnes and Nobles, and I read it while in Barnes and Nobles. I didn't want to take it home. I was like, dang, I got I got to go get the regular one and get a support. <laughs> <the project." laughs> so I was I was speed reading. Absolutely. Uh, what is your biggest fear? Um, that I, my biggest fear is that I won't matter. That when I when I when I leave here, it won't matter. It won't matter to anybody. Mm. Wow. And if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? This one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um oh gosh. The president of the United States. I would um I would I would definitely uh, probably focus on the mass incarceration issue that we have in this country. Like, I think it's one of the things that has affected particularly this community um, to have, you know, a prison population where 50% of those are African-Americans in a society where 13% of us are are African-American is is just a tragedy and it's it's disgusting and it's disparities. The wealth disparities in this country are just insane. Mass incarceration, I think, is one of the biggest issues facing us today. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's and um that wraps up that round and everybody that comes on this show i call a culture change agent man because they're changing the culture in their own specific way and then our last question we always ask every single guest has ever been on this show through going on 100 episodes is if you could change one thing about society most specifically our african-american culture what would it be and why that's deep um Um, it, that's really, really hard to say because I am so in love with my blackness. I'm so in love with my people and how we have been able to persevere and overcome. Mm-hmm. And like every obstacle it seems like we face, we have been able to push past. Um, one of the things I, I might change is our ability, is, is a little bit of our apathy. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that they that they've been able to do is convince us that the struggle is over and that there's nothing to fight against. We still have a fight. We still need to have our feet to the fire. We still need to be pushing forward this needle because there's so much work to be done for our community. There's so much more that we have to do and and we have to create leaders in this community in a way that we've done in the past. Like we we don't have Martin Luther King, we don't have Malcolm X's anymore. you know, they're there, but, but we don't have the kind of national reach, which is so surprising in an era of um, social media that we're not seeing 
you know, people move come forward in the way that we have in the past. But you, and, and, and in some ways, that's not fair because you have the Angela Rice, you have this um, Simone Sanders. You know, you have people, uh, you know, uh, Keith Boykin and and Vaughn Jones, and you know, uh, you know, a lot of these political pundits who are really out here and you know in the media representing us really, really well. But I think we need some strong leadership. We need some strong black leadership in this country who, is, who are going to pull us together as a community, show us what we need to fight for, and show us how to fight it. Mm. That's a wrap, man. I think you said it. You said so many things on this podcast that I think can relate to a wide range of audience from people that are aspiring to change career paths, people that are maybe are are, are students that that, that that left school that are trying to get back, people that are changing careers, people that are are older in their careers and maybe but still they still kind of are looking for more hope, man. I think you've touched a variety of different aspects of your life. You shared a lot. I know if we had more time, you would share, you, you have so much other stuff that we couldn't even touch on, man. So from the bottom of my heart, man, I want to thank you for giving well over an hour of your time, man, to share your story, to be honest, and and, and just give us um, a side that uh, of, of yourself that everybody doesn't see, but also the world doesn't see, man, which is why this podcast is so, so powerful, man. So I just want to say thank you, man. Um, I, I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate what you're trying to do for the culture. I appreciate you doing your, what you can to move this thing forward. We need more folks like you out here. We're going to be visible. We're out here trying to do some things, and I'm excited to see where this podcast goes. No doubt, no doubt, man. So for anybody that wants to stay in contact or keep in touch or find out more about what you do, or where, they, where can they find you right online? Uh, you can always, if you go to the Folding Lardner website, um, I, you can easily find me there. Um, friend me on Facebook. Seth Chandler Pearson. Um, I'm on Instagram, Seth5105. Um, happy to talk to anybody about anything, anytime, anywhere. All right, so um, I know the trouble is a nation. All that information will be on the show notes. So as we always do, as we always do, as we always do, I need y'all to do two things and two things only. One, make sure you leave a review. And number two, change the freaking culture. Good night.